our first Latrobe Asia webinar. I am Beck Strading, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University Australia. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. And I would also like to pay our respects to the people both past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who might be watching this webinar this evening. Latrobe Asia is proud of our continuing efforts to engage the public in thoughtful debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the region in which we live. And I'm delighted uh, to be able to discuss the recently released report by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute titled Uyghurs for Sale. Since 2017, more than a million Uyghurs and members of other Muslim minorities have disappeared into a vast network of re-education camps in the far west region of Xinjiang in China. This re-education appears to be entering a new phase and this really important report sheds, new, uh, sheds light on new evidence that many Uyghurs are now being forced to work in factories that are in the supply chains of very well-known global brands. So here with me to discuss this important topic uh, is our panel. So first, Vicky Shu uh, is the lead author of this Aspie Uyghurs for Sale report. Vicky is a journalist uh, and currently a researcher at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's Cyber Policy Centre. Thank you for coming, Vicky. Uh, and zooming in from New Zealand is Anna Fifield, uh, who is a prolific reporter from the Washington Post and the current Be uh, Beijing Bureau Chief. Uh, and in her role, uh, Anna has written several articles on this issue for the Washington Post. So thank you for coming in tonight, Anna. And finally, we have Associate Professor James Leibold, who is the Head of Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University and a leading authority on ethnic policy and history in China. Uh, James is also a non-resident senior fellow with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre and a co-author of the report. So thank you for being with us tonight, James. Pleasure. There will be an opportunity for audience Q&A in the second half of this webinar, for which we will be using Slido. So please go to slido.com and enter the code hash 22615. I can see we've put it up in the background. Uh, and you will be able to ask questions, which everybody will be able to see on Slido as the discussion is taking place. Uh, and you will be able to vote on questions that other people have asked. If you are having difficulties with Slido, please feel free to email the Latrobe Asia team at asia at latrobe.edu.au. Uh, but to get our discussion rolling tonight, I'm going to start uh, with Vicky. Uh, this report has made quite an impact, uh, a global impact, because it demonstrates how Chinese authorities are moving uh, Uyghurs into these government-directed uh, labour camps. So as part of this Xinjiang aid initiative. So I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about this Xinjiang aid initiative and some of the key findings uh, of this report? Sure. Um, I'll start with the key findings. Um, so we found that um, 
the Chinese government has organized um, these labor transfer programs for Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in Xinjiang, you know, taking them from Xinjiang to other parts of China and to these factories where, you know, they work and they um, typically receive um, Mandarin classes and other um, political indoctrination classes. Um, and uh, they live in segregated dormitories and they um, dine at segregated um, canteens. And then they're constantly under surveillance. And in some cases, their family members back in Xinjiang are also under surveillance. Um, so this kind of modern, really, you know, modern slavery is happening on a large scale and under state um, sponsorship. We estimated that between 2017 and 2019, about 80,000 people um, have been transferred out of Xinjiang, you know, away from their homes under this um, program. So going back to your question, your first question about the Xinjiang aid, so that is the overarching policy that, um, you know, that supports, that encourages this to take place. Um, so the Xinjiang aid policy is basically the state um, telling, uh, you know, local governments around the country that they need to go in, go into Xinjiang and help the state govern Xinjiang and transform Xinjiang in various ways. So you have Xinjiang aid, you have technology Xinjiang aid. So that is, um, you know, for the telecom companies, for the technology companies to build these databases, surveillance tools, surveillance systems, and to enable, you know, the government to, to build the surveillance state in Xinjiang. And then you have um, education on Xinjiang aid that is, you know, sending on um, PRC citizens and Han teachers to Xinjiang to teach kids um, the Han language, Confucian um, values. And then you also have industrial Xinjiang aid, and that is, uh, you know, labor transfer. And that is taking place both inside of Xinjiang, they're moving people around, and outside of Xinjiang, taking Uyghurs outside of their hometown. So what's the, mode, uh, what's the driving motivation behind this? I mean, what, what is at the core of, of, of what the Chinese Communist Party is doing um, with this forced labour initiative? At its core, um, you know, since 2017, we have seen an estimated 1 million Uyghurs being put into detention camps. At its core, this is an, an overreaction by the Chinese government. And, you know, since t on 2009, when, uh, you know, there were violent protests by Uyghurs, you know, on, against the Communist Party rule, and then, you know, there was so much violence and so many riots that um, this people has been deemed as terrorists by the government. And this is China's version of, you know, their war on terror. And, you know, the in terms of policy since 2017 that is putting people into camps and transforming the goal is to transform a people you know that is deemed um, lazy poor um, backwards uh, religious and extremists and um, so to transform them you know you send them into these factories and give them lessons teach them Chinese you know get them to work Ultimately, I think it's a very, sort of like racism is basically what's driving this policy, in my opinion. So uh, if I can turn to you, Anna, I mean, this report and also your own reporting in the Washington Post has shown um, that some of the world's biggest 
uh, companies and global brands are implicated in this global supply chain uh, using forced Uyghur labour. So can you explain a little bit to us about just how far they're implicated uh, and how have these companies responded to your reporting and to the ASPE report? Yeah, right. Thank you, Beck. Yeah, I was like super lucky and that Vicky and her team, you know, fantastic colleagues at ASPE shared some of their research with me as they were finding things out at the beginning. So I was able to follow up on one of the strongest leads there because I was in China on the ground. Uh, and there was pretty clear evidence that a Nike factory, one of the biggest Nike factories in the world, north of Qingdao, uh, was employing Uyghurs. So as a journalist covering these issues in side of China, you know, it's incredibly difficult. Like if you go to Xinjiang, it's incredibly difficult to do real reporting because of the surveillance that Vicky talked about, because there are people following you everywhere. And because it, I mean, frankly, it's extremely dangerous to talk to anybody there. Like I would endanger them by talking to them. So it's a tough thing. But um, so here it was uh, surprising when I went to the factory north of Qingdao and you could see, I mean, first of all, Vicky, through her sleuthing, found all of this open source material the Chinese government had put in state publications, their goals to transfer tens of thousands of Uyghurs to other parts of the country. There were state media stories talking about the compulsory Mandarin classes and all these kinds of things. So when I went to this Nike factory, I, um, I could see, uh, first of all, the factory itself had barbed wire around the outside. It looked kind of like a prison camp on one side, the side where the, there was a special police station uh, with signs written in Uyghur as well as in Mandarin. Uh, and next to that was the dormitories where the Uyghurs would live, and they all had to go in and out of this one gate where there was facial recognition technology, a lot of surveillance, uh, and then they could walk around the perimeter of the factory. Uh, so it was like incontrovertible, incontrovertible evidence right there that there were Uyghurs working inside the factory. Uh, and by talking to locals and trying to talk to some Uyghurs just to chat to them there, we were able to confirm a lot of the things that Vicky had found in state media and through other sources about, yes, they eat at separate canteens, they live in separate places, they can't communicate because their language is so, um, their Mandarin isn't up to scratch at the beginning. Uh, so we could see that, but also we found middlemen who advertise these people as if they're like, commodities saying you know almost like money back guarantee you know these people won't break their contracts they're under military style management so it was all kind of hiding in plain sight yeah so you, you mentioned that this is uh you know incredibly dangerous work that that you're doing um in this region um so i'm wondering about you're, you're in new zealand at the moment so i'm wondering about some of the broader consequences of, um, of doing this kind of research when you have uh, a regime that is, you know, quite secretive and, you know, it's a surveillance uh, state in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are the kind of broader implications on your capacity uh, to not just to report but to be, um, you know, the, the chief uh, of the Beijing bureau for the Washington Post? Yeah, it's something we think about a lot, obviously, and so we have to use... Um, 
encrypted messaging as much as we can, go places in person as much as we can. And in situations like this, it became, you know, I went to the factory one day and I wandered around the town and things and I, but I went to the factory gate and told them who I was and asked if I could talk to somebody inside about what was happening. So it wasn't like I was trying to hide who I was um, at all. And so we had a good day's reporting, but I just wanted that 10% more. So, and I had time, so I came back the next day. And clearly it was then that they were on to us. So we I had, you know, seven police officers surround me and basically ship me out of town, which is kind of normal for reporting in China now. You know, that's not exceptional at all. But what I do think about and I'm really conscious of is if, yes, if you speak to anybody that... Uh, you know, I have a background in reporting about North Korea, and in some ways, it feels very similar that if you talk to people and are spotted talking to people, you could get them in trouble for collaborating, you know, with an American reporter. Yeah, there's quite a lot there in terms of, you know, the ethics of, of journalism uh, in reporting in these, on these really sensitive issues. Uh, but I might um, turn to, to James. Uh, if I can. Uh, Vicky mentioned before that this needs to be interpreted as, as part of a kind of war on terror and that there's this goal to, to transform a people or to sinicize uh, the Uyghurs. Uh, but can you explain a little bit more about uh, why this is important to Beijing and situate it in a broader political and historical context so that we can understand, um, you know, what, what's going, what's the bigger picture here? Yeah, sure thing, Beck. Um, first, though, I should say this has uh, been a wonderful exercise in collaboration between you know, academics, uh, researchers, and think tanks like ASPE and, and a journalist uh, like Anna Fifield. So uh, it, it shows that, you know, with a bit of creative work, uh, different segments of, uh, you know, the, the knowledge community can come together to expose new information. Um, just to your question, I think there's a deep fear of instability that really drives much of the thinking amongst policymakers in Beijing. Um, you know, the political establishment in, in China for, for a long time has really been obsessed with um, chaos, instability, territorial dismemberment, and, and for, for some good reason. Uh, um, you know, modern Chinese history, if you look back at it, has witnessed um, uh, terrible episodes of political and ter uh, territorial division, uh, first under foreign imperialism in the first half of the 20th century, and then the, the chaos unleashed by uh, Mao uh, during campaigns like the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Um, yet, it's quite ironic that uh, as China and the Chinese Communist Party grows more powerful, uh, as it has done over the last decade, its insecurity is also increasing. Um, and that sense of insecurity is probably at its most heightened sense in peripheral frontier regions like Tibet, Xinjiang, and now Hong Kong, where it's seen as particularly vulnerable to dismemberment and foreign interference, and thus an urgent and continual need of what the Chinese uh, call stability maintenance work. Uh, so China's current drive to sinicize the weaker population is uh, a response partially at least, uh, I would argue, for a, a kind of irrational fear of dismemberment. So if you look at um, uh, how the policy community has been talking about this issue, you have very influential public intellectuals like Ma Rong, Huang Gang, Hu Lianhe, and others who have pointed to the specter of the collapse of the Soviet Union and have argued that China adopted uh, the same 
policies to manage its ethno-territorial diversity as the USSR, and thus it's in danger of splintering, much like the USSR did, along its ethnic seams. Uh, and in response, what these policymakers have uh, called for, and they found a willing uh, listener in Xi Jinping, is an increase of what they call inter-ethnic fusion, uh, a more forceful and proactive attempt to bind the peoples and territories of China together. And, and under Xi Jinping, um, China has certainly turned up the flames of the national melting pot. Um, and these re-education camps or the, uh, the uh, forced labor programs that uh, Vicky, uh, Vicky's report looked into uh, are viewed as kind of crucial sites for, for both fusion and transformation. Just can I follow up on that? I mean, you mentioned um, Tibet as a kind of um, comparison, uh, I guess. Uh, I'm interested in this idea that this is uh, a potentially a new phase uh, in uh, what the report describes as cultural genocide. Um, so are there other kind of historical comparisons uh, that we can draw upon to make sense of the trajectory of what's going on? Like, can we predict what might happen uh, in the future from understanding phase one and phase two of, uh, of what's going on uh, with the Uyghur minority. Yeah, well, predictions are a dangerous game. That's not one that uh, I like to, to engage in. But, you know, there's certainly international precedents. Um, you know, one thinks of the Nazi concentration camps, Stalin's gulags, or even now, recently, the efforts to eradicate the Rohingya uh, Muslim minority in, in Myanmar. But I also think there are kind of, I like to kind of think of this in terms of Chinese historical uh, parallels as well as within the Chinese civilizational context. Um, I think if you look at uh, Chinese thought, uh, there's, a there's a really stark contrast between Western liberalism. You know, within Chinese political culture, um, it doesn't hinge on individual rights, but rather the acceptance of social hierarchy and a belief that humans are malleable. You know, in Chinese political thought, humans are, are thought to be endowed with different levels of uh, what the Chinese call sujur or quality, meaning so a kind of poor Uyghur farmer in southern Xinjiang really sits down near the bottom of the evolutionary ladder and an official uh, of the Han ethnic majority in Beijing sits near the top. Um, but individuals are seen as malleable and it's the government, the Chinese Communist Party and its officials have a kind of moral responsibility to transform its citizens. So that means removing cultural and behavioral defects and pollutants. It means curing ideological diseases. It means eradicating uh, and inculcating uh, mainstream norms, thoughts, and behaviors. Uh, so if you look at back at the history of the Chinese Communist Party, you see that not only have they done this to, to Uyghurs and Tibetans, but they've also done it to recalcitrant students, political opponents, prostitutes, and even Han peasants alike. Uh, again, you know, uh, Han Chinese officials uh, in their thinking of what they think they're doing inside these re-education camps or through these labor transfer programs, it's really about uh, mind control. It's about social re-engineering of people that are perceived, as Vicky said, as backward. Uh, it's about strengthening the power, visibility, and control of the Chinese Communist Party. But ultimately, for the Uyghur people, it's a, a slow process of cultural genocide. Yeah, so um, I might uh, turn it over to Slido. So Slido is a fabulous way of uh, allowing 
uh, people who are watching from home to ask questions. So I would like to remind people that we have the code uh, up behind us, uh, hash 22615 on slido.com uh, and we've all already we have uh, a number of uh, really interesting questions up so uh, I'm just doing this from my phone uh, so the first question uh, I might uh, start with Vicky uh, if you want to take the first question uh, and that's how did the uh, PRC so successfully enlist most of the world's Muslim-majority governments uh, to back its claim or to back uh, its Xinjiang strategy to contain extremism uh, as part of that war on terror that you were talking about? I think, first, there is still, like, a lack of information about this just because how, you know, what's happening in Xinjiang is what we call... Um, techno authoritarianism you know it's 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 enabled by technology um, and it's been very successful and as anna has pointed out it's very difficult for journalists to go in and document what's going on um, so because of the lack of like you know confronting undeniable um evidence uh, countries, especially Muslim countries with economic ties um, with China, are you know they they're not under enough pressure to. Uh, are you, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, they're not under enough pressure to to do anything basically, um, and second, of course, is the economic ties that um, that they have uh, with China. And what I I have been super interested in is how Central Asian countries are acting. Um, about the situation. So um, my observation is on um, countries like Kazakhstan, uh, you know, a, a large number of Kazakh citizens um, or ethnic Kazakhs have been interned into these camps. And um, Kazakhstan has tried very hard to rescue a lot of its own citizens, but it's complicated and it hasn't, you know, it, it, it's, it hasn't taken a fully, how do you say, um, it, 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 it can't entirely, you know, stand up to China. But in comparison in Uzbekistan, like a lot of Uzbek citizens or ethnic Uzbeks have also been interned. And this government has done absolutely nothing because they're so reliant on China and their economy will, um, well, this is the belief, their economy will collapse um, if they do um, question China on this issue. And uh, you, uh, I think as, as um, uh, I think just last year, you know, Uzbek Uzbekistan was kicking out um, activists and academics who, you know, are questioning, who are raising questions about this out of their country, the border. Um, so yeah, I think that's the that that's the answers I can think of for now. On um, James, do you, do you, would you have something to add? Not particularly. Yeah. Why don't, why don't we move on to the next question? I'm sure we'll jump in and go back and forth. Ah, sure. Uh, well, maybe James, uh, you can take the next one, or uh, Anna. Uh, but do you have any feedback from Uyghurs who might have been released from the internment facilities? Uh, have you spoken to people who have experienced who, who have experienced this forced labour? Well, I mean, Anna could maybe chat about uh, the extent that she's been able to speak with anybody inside of China, which I suspect is really hard. Uh, but yeah, I mean, most of what we know about. Uh, people who have been interned, and I'm here I'm talking about re-education camps, come from those who have uh, escaped overseas, Kazakhstan, you know, uh, or elsewhere, 
as Vicky was suggesting, uh, or um, you know, some some in America, uh, some even here in Australia. Uh, but um, yeah, it's it, it, it's in terms of the forced labor program. Uh, I'm not aware of anyone who has been in one of those programs that's been able to speak uh, freely and publicly uh, with the international media. Uh, I mean, I could be wrong. I don't, I don't know if Anna has any uh, uh, information to add. Yeah, so I mean, me and my colleagues, we have talked to people who have emerged from the re-education camps in Xinjiang themselves, but we haven't, I haven't been able to talk to anybody who, you know, they've been, they are sent from Xinjiang as part of this program, which, you know, as far as I can tell is an effort, but you know, it's the kind of the phase two effort that you talked about, that first of all was re-education, and now the second phase is to try and really break the familial bonds between uh, family members in Xinjiang. So they're sending young people out for a year at a time to work at factories around Zhejiang province, uh, Guangdong, various places in China. But then at the end of that, at the end of that one year, they return to Xinjiang as far as we can tell. So yeah, there it's very extremely difficult for journalists to be able to talk to them once they're back home. Yeah, I just wanted to, I might get um, all three of you, if I could, to respond um, to this next question, uh, which is really, I mean, it's one that, that I grapple with as, a, as an academic, um, you know, who, who works in the field of, of international relations and foreign policy, and it's to do with responsibilities. Uh, uh, James, that you mentioned, you know, the concept of moral responsibility uh, in a Chinese sense, but uh, for, for Western liberal democratic states uh, like Australia or like New Zealand, or like the United States, um, what role do you see uh, for these states uh, in uh, pushing back against uh, phase two? Uh, what prospects are there uh, in whether it's in diplomacy or whether it's in more coercive tactics uh, for uh, for liberal Western democracies uh, to try to advance the human rights um, of Uyghurs and, and other Muslim minorities who are being uh, persecuted uh, in, in Xinjiang and beyond in China? I might start with Vicky and then I'll go to Anna and James, but uh, Vicky. Um, I think there are definitely things that, you know, uh, liberal democratic governments can do. Since the release of the report, we have been on um, in contact with um, you know foreign governments and for government agencies, and we have seen the eagerness from a number of governments. You know they want to deal with this, and then they want to um, have all the information to be able to deal with this. Um, and uh, as, you know, a part of that can be manifested in laws, as we know. And um, the the U.S. has come up with this. Um, a new piece of legislation that will potentially ban all products that are made in Xinjiang. Um, and that has gotten bipartisan um, support. And if they'll pass or not, we don't know, but I mean, it's a good start. And we've spoken with uh, a number of European um, government representatives and they're curious to know, you know, why brands from their country are engaged in this forced labor scheme and what they can do. So I think that's a really, really good start. And um, from a personal level, right? So, you know, this forced labor has potentially implicated the supply chains of so many well-known companies. You have Nike, you have Adidas, you have Apple, um, you have Amazon. And so 
I think this means, you know, I'm, this is a phase two for also individual consumers. Everyone is involved in this. You know, I personally use products of a number of these companies. So I think individuals also need to feel the responsibility to do something about this. And that inc could include um, talking to your local representative, asking them to, you know, uh, ask questions about this in the parliament. Um, as we have seen uh, in the States, um, Representative um, Ilhan Omar has sent out these letters to companies. So I think if we keep the pressure on, um, something might come out of it, yeah. Okay, so I might take that, that question to Anna, but I'm going to add uh, a little bit on. There's a, there's a question here on Slido about uh, what businesses can do to address this. So I guess this is, gets to the heart of that idea of corporate responsibilities. You know, to what extent do businesses, should they need laws um, to outlaw uh, engaging uh, in these supply chains? Um, so if you could uh, talk about um, the, the, the uh, you know, what this, what the, the sort of business dynamics mean for government policy, but also uh, what responses have businesses made uh, already? Because uh, it's bad PR too, right? I can imagine that these businesses don't want to be uh, caught up or implicated in this kind of activity. Right, yeah. And so over the last three years or so, as it's become known what's been happening inside of Xinjiang, we've seen a whole bunch of companies uh, cut ties or pledge not to use labour or products there anymore. So like Volkswagen, well, they're still there, maybe a little, uh, I think, not sure exactly what's happening with Volkswagen, but Nike, there's a lot of cotton that comes out of um uh, Xinjiang, so yeah, clothing manufacturers, tomato sauce makers, all of these kind of companies that were operating inside Xinjiang have tried to back away from that. But in this case, I think that a lot of them, despite all of their efforts on the supply chain and things, just don't know what's going on there. So in the case that I looked at, at uh, of Nike, this factory is owned by a South Korean company, which contracts to Nike, has been there um, doing that for 30 years. They produce, uh, they have like nine lines of shoes running, uh, more than a million pairs of shoes a year, I think it is, that they pump out. So when I approached Nike before I asked, um, before the report came out, they said, you know, the usual thing about corporate responsibility and we make sure, blah, blah. And in fact, the day that I went to the gate uh, of the factory, one of the reasons they told me that I couldn't go in was because there were Nike auditors in the factory that day. Um, but then in a kind of... Um, surprisingly quick response once Vicky's report and my story came out, Nike did put out a statement pretty swiftly saying that they would be reviewing, reviewing their suppliers hiring factor, um, practices in China. So that was a kind of uh, quick response to this so that they could see that there was a problem that I think they just weren't aware of. They weren't paying close enough attention. And if I could just quickly add one more thing about the previous point, which is I think that China expects Western democracies to uh, condemn this and to protest and to say all the kind of things that Australia and the United States and the United Kingdom and everybody is saying. 
I think where they've put a lot of their effort is into the other countries. Uh, so yeah, many of these Muslim majority uh, countries that Vicky was talking about before. So there's been a lot of kind of soft power efforts, a lot of diplomacy, a lot of journalists like from Saudi Arabia, from Pakistan and things invited on tours to Xinjiang so they can report how happy the people there are having gone through these camps and things and that feeds into their propaganda effort. And so for something like, for the Chinese Communist Party, having Mohammed bin Salman come to Beijing and basically say, Saudi Arabia, custodian of the two Muslim holy sites, you know, supports China's efforts to stamp out terrorism in Xinjiang, you know, that is a huge political victory for China. That would be, you know, that's where they think their efforts pay off. They're not even going to bother to try with Australia, US, UK. So, uh, James, I, I want to get your uh, views on this uh, as well uh, around, you know, what, what can be done to sort of defend uh, human rights uh, of, the, of the, the Uyghur minority. Uh, and drawing on uh, what Anna just said about soft power, I mean, these, is this uh, what's going on uh, at the moment linked in with, you know, uh, other soft power diplomacy mechanisms like the Belt and Road Initiative, for example. Uh, do you see uh, much hope in, um, you know, a pressure campaign that comes from uh, Western countries or is, uh, is there the potential that this kind of public diplomacy actually works uh, to the benefit of the CCP in China? Uh, well, I, I think that uh, Beijing is very sensitive to international criticism. They spent a lot of time trying to counter it. Um, I mean, there's a perception out there uh, among some governments in the liberal West that the best way to shape China's behavior is to do it by behind closed doors, uh, to have closed door human rights dialogues where you uh, try to slowly... Uh, nudge and moderate uh, Beijing's behavior. But what we've seen, certainly under Xi Jinping, is that most of those uh, behind closed door forums have, uh, have failed. Uh, and that the best way to try to shape the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party is to kind of name and shame, to, to go public, to engage in, uh, you know, a battle of ideas. Um, and uh, uh, you know, that, that continues and certainly Beijing has gotten far more sophisticated in its counter uh, propaganda strategy. It's got uh, probably far more resources than uh, we have. Uh, it spends far more time on this uh, than, than, than we do. Uh, but at the same time, I think Anna's point was a really good one that we uh, who are concerned about human rights abuses in China need to do a better job of communicating our understanding and our concerns outside of a handful of liberal democratic countries. Um, you know, we're in some regards, we're kind of losing, uh, we're losing the battle. Um, you know, there are far more states, if you just look at the issue of uh, what's happening in Xinjiang to the Uyghurs, uh, some of you will remember these, uh, these uh, various letters that were signed at the, at the UN uh, and, uh, you know, it demonstrates that China has got far more countries um, behind it than uh, those who oppose it. And um, I, I think if you look at those countries, 
Um, many of them tend to be authoritarian states th th themselves who have very appalling records of human rights abuses as well. Um, and more work needs to be done to educate the publics of those countries. Their uh, language is a big barrier. Um, you know, we need to get our conversations uh, out of English and into Arabic and, uh, and other languages so that we can communicate our findings uh, more broadly. Um, uh, so there's certainly a, a lot of uh, work to be done in that regards. So I guess you could kind of situate this issue in a broader context of a global decline in democracy as well and a decline in freedom that has been tracked by um, sort of comparative uh, political scientists for well over a decade now. Uh, but just while we're on this um, topic of, uh, you know, uh, the rest of the world and their reaction to what's going on in China, one of the Slido questions uh, is, uh, has there been much attention on these issues in the rest of the world? You know, as you point out, James, um, there has been, uh, you know, attention in the Western world, uh, but is it getting uh, airplay or time uh, considered uh, in other countries or is this something that's just sort of uh, hidden? Well, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question and that's troubling. Um, you know, and part of it is my the language barrier for myself. I don't read, you know, the, the Arabic language daily. So my, my anecdotal understanding of it is that, yeah, it's not getting any traction. Um, and, and as I said, that's a, that's, that's a concern. And so, uh, you know, at ASPE, uh, we were talking about this issue today and to, to what extent, you know, we can... Uh, try to kind of translate some of our uh, our reports in different languages so that we make them more accessible uh, outside the English uh, speaking community. Um, it's it's a real challenge because that stuff can also be very expensive. Uh, but I do think that this is this is a key challenge uh, for those who are concerned about what's happening in China. We just look at the UN. Um, you know, certain, certainly China has been able to, to work the UN system in a way that works in its favor. The Human Rights Council has, you know, really uh, been, you know, turned into a kind of lapdog of, uh, of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and it doesn't help the fact that the U.S. withdrew from it. You know, we just, you know, I mean, we, we could go on and talk about um, how under Trump, uh, the United States kind of lost its uh, moral uh, and ethical leadership uh, globally, and and that really does play into the the hands of uh, of Beijing. So, Anna, what's your sense um, as a, as a journalist covering uh, this these issues in China? Uh, are other press from you know non Western countries covering these issues? Does it get a lot of attention in other parts of the world, or is this something? Uh, that is really focused on in a handful of states. Yeah, um, I my you know kind of uh, instinctive response to that. I don't. I also don't read the Arabic dailies. Uh, funnily enough, um, but from my reporting that I have done on this, I think that when you look at the Middle East, you know there's a, a pretty short uh, relationship, like the relationship between the Middle East and Chinese uh, and China has not been going on for very long. 
sorry, I'm not expressing that well, but what I mean is there's not really much depth of knowledge in the Middle East about China. There aren't very many experts who speak Chinese and things. So in many ways, a lot of these countries, which are on the receiving end of Belt and Road projects and things, are also very receptive to some of the United Front work that is going on alongside that. Their journalists are willing to and happy and diplomats too, to be taken on these trips to Xinjiang where everything is staged for them and it's highly choreographed. So I think that, that what coverage there is in the um, other media, especially in the Middle East, is highly scripted and is not the kind of independent journalism that, say, the BBC or the New York Times has been doing about Xinjiang. So that's, I mean, that's a real concern that I think that there's not much real information getting to people in other parts of the world. Um, and so, yeah, there's probably not much interest in it either, which is very confusing. So, Vicky, your background is also journalism. So I'm wondering what your perspective on this issue is about, you know, how do you uh, promote uh, this issue or how do you report on an issue where it gets to communities that, uh, you know, are beyond just um, the sort of the, the Western liberal state media that is currently reporting on it? Mm-hmm. And my observation, I think, my immediate observation uh, is similar to Anna and James, and it's not being widely reported um, in other parts of China, uh, in other parts of the world, uh, aside from the, the main sort of Western democratic countries. Um, but I do think um, the Xinjiang story is, um, is the story that represents today's China. I think that's not an exaggeration. And I do think there are reporters in various countries. Um, for example, in, um, and surprisingly in Israel, um, I think um, I think late last year, one of the I would say the the best um, accounts that's written about uh, one former detainee in the camp uh, was published in um, Haaretz. Um, but at the same time, you have another reporter from um, I think it's Israel Today um, writing like a standard uh, government organized tour in Xinjiang sort of piece. Um, so I think we continue to see this battle playing out. You know, you have the Chinese state sort of telling, you know, telling reporters what to say. And then you have reporters who, you know, who try to, um, to speak their own mind and then try to portray this um, subject um, objectively. Um, how do we get to more readers um, during this battle? Um, I, I think the part we can do is to publish findings that are as accessible as possible, and and and, um, and as James said, uh, you know what we have done here, like a collaboration between the research sector and journalists, I think is very something that's very valuable. Um, uh, a sort of like collaboration of different sectors of knowledge. I think um, that's something else um, that we should be doing more in the future. And I think lastly, um, you know, if we do want to uh, mainstream this knowledge, I think I want to remind everyone of, uh, of uh, this, this, uh, this thing that happened last year. There, there was a video on, of a teenage girl in America. She did this TikTok video. Uh, while she was curling her lashes and she was curling her lashes and, and she was saying, Hey guys, I just want to teach you guys how to get longer lashes. And then they start, she started talking about um, the plight of the Uyghur people. 
Um, and of course, she got censored by TikTok, which is owned by a um, Chinese company, ByteDance. Um, that video went viral, and that video told so many people, perhaps, you know, more people than, you know, what a New York Times article can do. So I think we should never underestimate um, the power of pop culture, the power of these you know, social media platforms, and we shouldn't underestimate young people and their power um, and their knowledge and their ability to you know, make these things more um, mainstream and you know, to, to make more people aware. So just on that, Vicky, I'm curious, and I hadn't thought about this question before, but are there celebrities engaged in this issue? Yeah, that's the thing. Not many celebrities are engaged in this issue just because, you know, Hollywood today uh, is so different from Hollywood 10 years ago. You know, what happened in Sudan, there were, you know, the, the celebrities were all over it. Even with like Tibet, you know, celebrities are all over it because it's cool, it's fashionable, it's just, you know, and, and maybe celebrities, you know, found it in themselves that they, they did think they need to support Dalai Lama. But in the current climate, um, no celebrity dares to go anywhere close to the Uyghur issue. And that is a big problem, you know. Um, whatever is going on in the UN, um, you know, normal people, everyday citizens don't know about it and they don't, they don't feel like they need to know. But if the celebrities, if the movie stars aren't talking about it, then, then yeah, no one, yeah, no one is really talking about it except for, you know, people at universities or who are reading the papers. So I guess um, one of the, the next question I have here on Slido gets uh, also to this heart of how do you maintain pressure um, on uh, the, the CCP about this issue? And it's about um, COVID-19. Of course, we are all um, you know, living through this really weird and strange period of time uh, dealing with COVID-19. Uh, and Tom, one of our uh, viewers, uh, has suggested that this has come at the worst possible time for Uyghurs, considering um, that nations will be very inward looking um, for the foreseeable future. Do you have any comments on, um, you know, how the, the, the issue of the forced labour camps and what's going on with the Uyghur minority community uh, links with um, China's COVID strategy or whether COVID really is going to kind of distract uh, even further from the amount of attention that this issue might generate uh, globally. Uh, I might start with Vicky and move to Anna and James. And as we can see, um, Uyghurs are continuing to be moved from Xinjiang to other parts of China during COVID. Uh, you know, we saw batches of Uyghurs being moved from Xinjiang to Hunan province in February, which is one of the epicenters in China. Um, you know, we saw pictures of them wearing masks, um, and I, I don't think they look terribly happy in those pictures, um, personally. And it's troubling. And uh, I, I, you know, we have heard from, uh, again, government agencies who are saying they would love to look into this, but they're completely, you know, flooded by um, COVID stuff, and which is understandable, but um i mean yeah what can you do we yeah i don't know i don't i don't have a good answer to that but yes on um, COVID has been a distraction and it's very worrying that uyghurs continue to be moved to to these you know areas 
Um, so Anna, um, I'd just like to, to add to this. I mean, one of the, the interesting things uh, around COVID are these um, strategic competition narratives between uh, you know, the United States um, saying that it's, you know, it's China's fault and um, China saying that the US is the problem. Um, so I'm wondering, can, can you talk a little bit about um, the, the, how uh, the COVID situation might impact on um, reporting or on attention um, to what's going on in these forced labour camps? Yeah, I mean, I think it all fits into this bigger strategy or bigger aim of the Chinese Communist Party, which is really to strip us of our ability to report independently inside of China. So there's been a bunch of things that have been happening, partly um, because of COVID, but also there's this tit-for-tat media war which is going on now between the United States and China, which has um, led to the expulsion of I mean, almost the entire New York Times Bureau, uh, half the Washington Post Bureau, and that's the other half, not me, my colleague, Jerry Shi, has now left China. Uh, and Wall Street Journal, all the Americans there have also had to leave. And I think that that has been, um, you know, what China has been wanting to do anyway, is to whittle down the number of journalists who are operating inside China. Uh, this was a convenient as part of this escalation with the United States. But even now, you look at what's happening during COVID. I mean, the reason I am in New Zealand now and not in China is because I came out on a quick visit to see my son and got trapped outside of China because they banned foreigners. So they're telling diplomats now not to come back before May the 15th. Who knows when, you know, non-diplomats will be able to return. You know, maybe I will be outside for months. But I think this is part of their strategy yeah, to limit what we can do. But even the journalists who are still in China now, we've seen uh, over the past year, the Communist Party has really kind of weaponized journalist visas. So many journalists, and particularly journalists who have done great work on Xinjiang, are now on six month, three month, even one month long visas which basically means they need to reapply for their visa as soon as they get one. So this is part of an effort to stop us from doing this kind of independent reporting, either by kind of um, making us fear that this will cost our, us our visa or just simply you know, obstruction, keeping us out, whether it's out of Xinjiang or out of the country right now. And this is part of this broader trend of control. I think what they would love is for us just to go to the foreign ministry briefing at three o'clock every afternoon and dutifully report what they say about America planting the virus in Wuhan and these kinds of things. So James, did you have anything to add to this um, discussion about the, the, the COVID-19 situation and, and what effect this might have um, on uh, the Uyghur minority? Well, I'll speak more broadly about um, what COVID has uh, helped reveal in terms of China's response and global discussions about how one responds to a pandemic, uh, which, of course, is something um, governments across the globe are really having to learn for the first time. Uh, I mean, you know, there's this, this uh, narrative out there that China's response was uh, far more effective uh, than, um, say, it's happening in Italy or the UK or the US. Um, and, you know, there, there's a number of problems with that. I mean, one, uh, the fact that China covered up uh, what was happening in Wuhan for, for several months, which really allowed this thing to go global 
in a way that's been quite detrimental. But also uh, the way China's responded is uh, with measures that I think many uh, in citizens in liberal democratic countries would find very uncomfortable. Its use, uh, it shed new life on its ability, light on its ability to use uh, new surveillance capabilities to uh, monitor people, its uh, ability to detain, forcibly detain people and put them into quarantine. Um, and so I think it's starting a kind of global conversation about to what extent we're willing to, uh, to, to trade our liberties uh, uh, in, in response to a pandemic like this, to, to what extent uh, we're, um, you know, we're, we're willing to adopt a kind of a Chinese approach, which uh, might in the short term help us, uh, you know, slow the, the, the rate of the virus, but also in the longer term could be highly detrimental to our civil liberties. Uh, so it's, uh, I actually think it's a, it's a helpful conversation to have. Uh, but again, the work of ensuring that uh, the narrative of people, what they, they, they know about how China's response is correct, is, it becomes increasingly important. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, this idea of kind of, um, you know, uh, competent governance and whether or not, you know, people are willing to put their trust into authoritarian governments who are more likely to be able to stamp out uh, this disease. So it is a really important conversation. I think, Anna, did you have a follow-up point yeah, to I that? I was just going to add one quick thing after that, um, in that there was a lot of discussion, especially a few months ago when the doctor died in uh, Li Wenyang in Wuhan, and there was this kind of uh, outpouring of anger and, uh, about this. There's a lot of discussion about whether this would weaken China and whether it would make China uh, have to you know, face some kind of political instability or face some dissent there. But I think it's actually the exact opposite. And that now they've got all this technology that James was just talking about, that uh, they had in Xinjiang before much of it, and now it's been rolled out to other parts of the country where it's a real name, uh, registration, facial recognition, where they track you a lot of the time. And I think that this is something that the Chinese Communist Party will want to keep in place across all of China and to say, look, now that we have these tools, you know, we're able to keep you safe and this is good for you and like none of this stuff, the QR codes to scan into the subway, I don't think that's going away when COVID goes away. So uh, one of the, the, the questions on Slido that's been up there for a little while and I'm quite interested uh, uh, to hear your views, uh, in your research, uh, how, to what extent have you been able to incorporate the views of people within the Chinese community? Do you get a sense that uh, people in China know what's going on and have views about it? Uh, Mike, turn to, to Vicky um, to, to ask about your research uh, on that. Oh. Vicky, you're on mute. You're on mute. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry. Um, That's okay. So um, I kind of, uh, I. I I think I know where this question is coming from. So I'll answer it. To answer it directly, um, we, the research, you know, we draw our um, evidence from a range of different um, um, sources that includes open source research, that includes state media, government documents, Chinese government documents, um, satellite imagery on academic paper. So that's where we get our information from, you know, 
that doesn't, th this information doesn't have a particular opinion, right? It's not a Uyghur opinion, it's not a Chinese opinion, it's not a Western opinion, it's a bunch of documents. Um, the second point I want to make is after, um, so we didn't have to incorporate a Chinese community opinion in our, in our report. Um, the second point I want to make is after the release of the report, we were speaking to a Hong Kong-based um, auditor who has a large firm and does auditing for a bunch of companies. Some of them are named in our report. And um, he said, um, you know, this is something that um, hasn't been spoken about, hasn't been discussed about, and it's new to the companies, it's new to even the auditors. And what um, this auditor said to me that was super interesting was that um, his house was splitted because of um, this report. He said, you know, usually he and his auditors who are PRC citizens can agree on, you know, what is good labor practice, what is bad labor practice, you know, child labor, bad, you know, it's very clear. Um, but on this issue, when they were talking about our paper, when they were talking about Qingdao Taekwon shoe factory, which makes shoes for um, Nike and which Anna visited, um, his PRC citizens could not see what's wrong with that. They couldn't see what's wrong with, you know, taking a bunch of Uyghurs away from their homes, put them in Qingdao and get them to make shoes and then teach them Mandarin, teach them the Chinese Communist Party's version of political correctness. So um, I think that's, uh, that view is somehow, you know, representative of the view of the Chinese community, unfortunately, just because how much fake news there is in the state media, so, you know, the, the very sort of one source of information, uh, you know, for us, for research, is state media. And when they talk about these transfers, they talk about how we managed to transfer 700 people from one location to another. Um, before they were transferred, they were so poor, they were so lazy, they didn't take showers. And after they were transferred, they learned how to take showers. Um, their hair is flowing. You know, these are Muslim women we're talking about, when we were talking about. Um, the underlying racism, the underlying, you know, the patronizing attitude um, is what I have personally observed in a lot of so-called Chinese communities. And I think there is some reckoning to do over there. I think we've got time for one more, one final question um, from Slido. And this one, uh, I guess, is uh, asking you to uh, grapple with uh, the impacts of your report uh, in terms of, um, oh, I've just lost it. Uh, do you think this expose will halt these types of activities or will it continue to happen, but the CCP will do a better job at hiding it? And I think I'll add a bit, uh, a, a follow-up to that, that question is, you know, does the CCP want to hide it? I mean, there, there seems to be a lot of secrecy um, and a lot of, you know, um, pushing journalists out. But uh, will China get better at hiding it? And is that really what they want to do anyway? So I might start with Anna and James and then Vicky. Huh. Um, will they get... I don't, uh, I, don't, I don't know the answer, I don't think. I think I'm going to throw that one to Vicky straight away. Okay. Oh, um, I think... I think since the report was out, we have seen um, CCTV and Xinhua has pumped out. Am I muted? No, no I'm not. 
sorry. Uh, CCTV and Xinhua have like pumped out, um, you know, denials and statements. And um, I've seen a video of Uyghurs um, read, like facing a camera, reading off a piece of paper, uh, it appeared to be, um, saying, you know, I, my name is blah, blah, blah. I have been transferred. I'm extremely happy. I'm paid so much. I'm so happy. Um, this, uh, the foreign ministry have made several on several statements denying that this is going on at all. So I think they do care. They care a lot about this. And then they're trying to, not to hide, but to deny. And I don't think they're going to stop transferring people just because ASPE or Washington Post wrote about it. I think that's a little unrealistic. I think without further pressure from governments, without further, you know, actions like sanctions, um, or, you know, um, it's, it's, it, this is nothing will happen. China won't budge. Um, but as I said, I think there's hope on, you know, if the pressure is on, on something will change. And I mean, on, from what I can see, companies um, and industries, you know, have started to think about this. They are starting to react to this. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that's something positive that we've seen, James. Yeah, just maybe coming on the kind of information warfare aspect of it, which I really think is a, a crucial part of the story. Um, you know, I mean, so much of what shapes our understanding is uh, driven through the information we access. Um, and we've certainly seen uh, the Chinese Communist Party invest millions, billions of dollars in pumping out uh, disinformation, misinformation, a whole range of topics. But they've also, uh, you know, uh, made moves on other fronts, uh, such as, um, you know, putting in new restrictions for foreign reporters that Anna was talking about, um, and also uh, tightening up their uh, own kind of uh, data security. Uh, I've certainly witnessed over the last decade uh, far less information being put up on the Chinese internet. Um, they're far more careful about what they share. Uh, they certainly have uh, pretty robust procedures to ensure that information isn't late. Um, but at the same time, what we've seen in the case of the Xinjiang story is that information has gotten out uh, through leaked documents. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, when you have clever researchers, competent researchers like Vicky and uh, others at ASPE, uh, it's still rather remarkable what you can find uh, uh, publicly available. Uh, to try to trace uh, what's happening in China. And I think, you know, what we've all found uh, over the last decade is that we need uh, interesting new collaborations. We also need to be uh, highly uh, creative in the methodologies we use uh, to continue to dig at this story. Um, and, and, you know, it, it becomes increasingly important as we have this kind of battle for ideas uh, occurring globally. Well, I'm afraid um, we are going to have to leave the discussion there, uh, but I would like to thank Vicky, Anna and James um, for joining me this evening. Uh, it has been an incredibly interesting discussion. I have learnt a lot um, from the three of you this evening, so thank you. Uh, and thank you also um, to those of you who are watching uh, this La Trobe Asia webinar. It is our first webinar. So um, thank you, the three of you, for coming along and participating in our first uh, webinar driven by COVID-19. 
uh, and self-isolation. Uh, but this event has been recorded. Uh, if you have registered already for this event, uh, you'll be emailed the appropriate links uh, when they are ready to go. Uh, you can follow us uh, on Twitter at Latrobe Asia, or you can join our mailing list to find more details of events coming up, which um, will probably be online for a little while yet, um, as well as information about our Latrobe Asia publications. So thank you.